Greetings and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Yitzchak Et Shalom and we study one chapter of Tanakh in each of these podcasts. It's my delight to be studying Sefer Divrei Hayamim with you. We're now in Divrei Hayamim Bet Perak Chaf Vav. Uh, as we uh, did at the end of the previous podcast, we read the first two psukim in this parak because it described uh, the uh, coronation, or shall we say the setting of Uziyahu on the throne and now we will go back to the beginning of Parak Chavav. Uziyahu takes over from his father, Amatsiyahu. Uh, and we will see that he follows a similar pattern where he starts out very promising and then goes south. Vaychu et kol am Yehuda, kol am Yehuda et Uziyahu, v'hu ben shana. He was 16 years old at the time. V'hem lichu oto tachat aviv Amatsiyahu. And they, they crowned him or they, they put him on the throne in the place of Amatsiyahu, his father. And as I mentioned last time, Amatsiyahu was king for 29 years, and this boy is 16. Does that mean that he's the eldest son, and therefore the assumed crown prince, and that Amatsiyahu got a very late start in having kids? Or does it mean that um, that Yotam, that uh, Uziyahu is one of the younger children, and uh, nonetheless he's the one selected? In any case, uh, he does certainly start off very promising. Hubanat Elot. Elot is near Elat, uh, and it is uh, a port Town on the on the Red Sea by Shivah Lihuda. And he restored uh, Elot, which uh, Shlomo had first built up, uh, restored it to Yehuda after the king died. Remember that in the south, borders changed often between Edom and various invading peoples, and Yehuda here got it back. Now, now let's hear about Uziah himself. He was 16. There's a little bit of confusion about who the subject is in several of these psukim. As I'll point out, was king for 52 years. But that has a real asterisk on it, asterisk on it as we will see. Again, as we've seen in, uh, in the normal pattern of presenting the kings, we're told how long they rule and who their mother is. We know who their father is the previous king. He did that was straight in the eyes of Hashem, just like Amatziahu, his father, did. And of course, remember that Amatziahu was good until he brought the Avodah Zarah from Edom. And this is where it gets a little confusing. That he would seek out God. And that, in the context of a king, usually means seek out God's guidance and, uh, and instruction through the Nevi'im, and in some cases through the Urim Betumim, in the days of Zechariah. The problem with this is that Zechariah, of course, was killed by Yoash, uh, with the direction of Yoash. So what does this mean? Amevin bir Elohim, who understood Nevuah. So it could be that there's another Zechariah, we'll see. When he was seeking out God, God had him be successful. Now, if you read this really as a Zechariah, then we are no longer talking about Uziyahu. We have to go back to the end of Pasuk Dalad and say, What was it that Amatziyahu did? Amatziyahu sought out God through Zechariah, etc. And he was successful then. But that's very difficult in the Pasuk. So, He went out and fought against the Plishtim. And this again is Uziyahu. The important Plishti town of Gat. Uh, he broke through the walls there, with Chomat Yavne, another Plishti town, with Chomat Ashdod, the coastal town of Ashdod, of the Plishtim, Vayivne Arim, Ashdod, Plishtim, and he built cities up in those areas, Jewish cities. Now, and there's a play on words that will show up several times in this parak with the name Azayahu, Vayazrehu Ha'elohim. 
that's a phrase that we don't find elsewhere. Um, but here it's used as a play on words on Azariah, God helped him. Al plishtim ve'arvim. The arvim are the ones we read about earlier in the very bet. Hayushvim be'gurbal. We don't know where gurbal is, but it's going to be somewhere in the southern part of the Yehuda's territory. Ve'ham me'unim. The me'unim seem to be the Ammonim with sikul otiot, because the regular citizens of Ammon are called Bnei Ammon in Tanakh. So the Ammonim, who we hear about now, seem to be some desert dwellers in that area, perhaps near Ma'on, Drom Har Chevron. Vaitnuha Ammonim, same ones, Mincha Luziao. They had to pay, pay him a tribute, a yearly tribute. Vayelech Shmo his, his reputation went all the way to Egypt. So this is now all in the south. Kechazik Al he was very, very strong. Vayelech Uziao Migdalim Birushalayim, very popular old, old song to this, uh, these words. Uziao built turrets in Yerushalayim. Al Shar Hapina, remember Shar Hapina is a gate that's at the uh, on the western side, it's more near the current Shar Yafo. Uh, the Al Shar Hagai. Now, of course, this uh, Shar Yafo is really not a, a proper location because we're talking about an earlier time uh, where the city has not been built up to that size, but in that direction. The Al Shar Hagai. Shar Hagai may indeed be Shar Ephraim uh, that we read about earlier. The Al Hamiksoa. Miksoa uh, is actually on the eastern side. Vayichazkem. So he built these turrets and strengthened them as a defense of Yerushalayim. In the meantime, even Migdalim Bamidbar, he also built turrets out in the desert. And dug many cisterns. He had lots of possessions, lots of flocks, and therefore he needed lots of grazing land, and therefore he needed lots of cisterns to get water from. Both in the in the lowlands and in the flatlands of Israel, of Yehudah, he had farmers and he had vintners, both in the mountains and up on the Carmel. And Carmel here is actually Carmel in the Dromar Hebron, not the one near Haifa. He was a farmer, he was somebody who loved the land. So he had he was a rancher and a farmer, meaning he held animals and farmland and he had people working for him. And as a result of that, built all of these support systems in the desert. And now, all of this is very good. He had uh, warriors. They went out by number. So he had army directors uh, who, would, uh, who would count them out and who would uh, direct them out and lead them out um, to war. One of them, Hananyahu, was uh, sort of the chief of staff. There were 2,600 heads of, um, of units in the army. So the 307,500 soldiers, Osei Melchama Bechoachayel, who were valiant and valorous soldiers, La'azor HaMelech, Alayev, and again La'azor, Playing on his name Uziyahu, which is also Azariyahu. Vayachem Uziyahu, and there's something new that we hear about him. Lechol Hatzava, and this is now coming deep, uh, you know, a hundred or two hundred years into the Iron Age. Maginim or Machim Bechovaim. So uh, shields and spears and helmets, Veshir Yonot, armor, Veshatot, which is bows. It's even though that means rocks for shooting, 
meaning in a slingshot, it means the tools of a slingshot. And it's going to get even better. So he set up like machines, as it, as it were, to, to create these. To be up on the turrets and on the corners of the walls. So in other words, these are like catapults that are shooting arrows out, and big rocks out as defense. His reputation went far. He worked. He was wondrous in how much he was able to strengthen the city and the defense of the city. And here's the downside. He became haughty to a destructive level. And he trespassed against God. Let's see what the trespass is. He decided to come into the Mikdash in order to bring Ktoret on the Mizbeach. And this entire story of a king from Shevet Yudah, from Beit David, wanting to come into the Mikdash to offer up a Ktoret, unlike some of the other kings we heard turn to Avodah Zarah, he wants to come in and do the Avodah of a Kohen in the Mikdash. It's sort of a, a flip. We got a flip later on in history with the story of the Chashmonim, who are Kohanim, who then uh, take the position of kings. Uh, but here, so Azariah Kohen, which some will argue is the same Zechariah that we had earlier, but they can't be the Zechariah who was killed in the Mikdash, or else a different Kohen Azariah. He had 80 strong Kohanim follow him in. Now remember, a non Kohen is not allowed to come into the Mikdash. He has walked into the inside of the Mikdash where there's a small Mizbeach. Uh, the golden altar. They tell him, it's not for you, Ziao, to offer up incense to God. That's for the Kohanim, the children of Aaron. They're sanctified, and part of what their job is is Lahaktir. Get out of the Mikdash, you've already trespassed. You're not allowed to be in here. This will not be a source of of kavod, and it's not a kavod that comes coming to you from Hashem. That comes to the Kohanim. Now, by Za'af Uziyahu, and this is something we heard much earlier with Asa, when Asa was given rebuke by the Navi, and his response was to get very angry at the Navi, he had a, a uh, fire pan in his hand, with his anger the Kohanim, suddenly he had Sarat burst forth all over his forehead, here he is standing over the Mizbach HaKtoret, and he's in front of the Kohanim, right in Hashem's house, and suddenly, boom, Ktoret. Now the fact that it's Lifnei Kohanim is also a poignant little piece. Clearly, somebody who's standing in the Mikdash and becomes the most um, severe kind of impure person that could be as a living person, barely living, and that's Tzarat, Mitzorah, is in some cases as severe as a mate, as a, as a corpse, um, and, and in ways that are unique relative to other Tumot, uh, is, is its own sort of irony. But the fact that he's doing it happens in front of the Kohanim, remember, who is it that declares somebody a Mitzorah? Is a Kohen has to see it. And so it's, it's the whole nine yards in one shot. And we'll talk about it at the end of the parak why Tzarat uh, happens here and what's the common thread between the occasions of Tzarat and Tanakh. 
So as the coin of looks at him, they all look at him and say, they see Tzarat on his forehead. It's not somewhere hidden, it's right there on his forehead. They quickly get him out. Because he's Tamei. He himself wants to get out. He realized God plagued him. He stayed in Mitzorah for the rest of his life, which means he had to be in seclusion. Really, like he sat in literally a free place. But what does it mean? It means is a secluded place where he's free of anybody else. He was cut off from Hashem's house and he ended up staying in a place outside the city. Remember, Mitzorah has to be outside of the city. So he had a son named Yotam. A uh, name that remember from Shoftim Paraktet, and Yotam is the regent who judges everybody while his father, the king, is alive but unable to act. So again, like we had with several other kings, the Rishonim Bachronim, meaning the Rishonim, are always promising and successful, and then at some point something slips in the king's attitude, either towards Avodazara, haughtiness, and things go in a different direction. The earlier words, the later words, that Yeshayahu is credited with writing that. Remember, in the beginning of Sefer Yeshayahu, Chazon Yeshayahu ben Amotz, Asher Chazal, Yudav Shalami Mei, Uziyahu Yotam HaChazachizkiyahu, Malchei Yehuda. So it starts out in the period of Azariyahu, or Uziyahu, and Yotam, his son who takes over. However, none of the story of Uziyahu, or barely any of the story of Uziyahu, is written in the book of Yeshayahu. So that means that evidently there was another book of the story of Uziyahu that Yeshayahu composed that we don't have. Uziyahu died. They buried him in the area, in the Chalkata Sadat, where the kings are buried, but they could not bury him inside because it's Mitzorah. And now Yotam took over as a proper king as opposed to being just a regent. And that's uh, the, the story of Uziyahu. Just a note here about Uziyahu's Sarat. You know, we have several people in Tanakh who famously get Sarat. The first one, perhaps surprisingly, is Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai when Hashem um, gives him his charge. That's the famous story of the Sneh. This is in uh, Shemot Perak Dawid. And he tells Moshe to, the second sign is to put his hand under his arm and comes out and he has Sarat. Uh, but that seems to be more of a demonstrator although we're going to come back to that in a couple minutes. The second one is probably the most famous story, which is Miriam. And Miriam gets Sarat when she speaks with her brother about Moshe. Uh, the other famous Mitzoraim and Tanakh are Naaman, the Syrian general, who ends up getting cured by Elisha, and then as a result of that Gehazi, Elisha's assistant, who goes against Elisha's wishes and runs after Naaman for a gift. Um, and, uh, and then Uziahu. There are the Arba'an Hashimet Sora'im that Chazal say are Gehazin, his three sons, but we don't have any information about them. So we really can't, can't throw them into the mix. Um, what is the one thing that all of those have in common? Moshe at Har Sinai, Miriam, Naaman, Gehazi, and Uziyahu. It's not Lashon Hara. We don't hear Uziyahu speaking that way at all. Um, it seems to be, although the Gemara in Arachin after Zion says there's seven different sins for which one would get Negaim, the one thing that they all have in common is haughtiness. In every case, they did not recognize their own position. 
Let's think about, go from it backwards. The first of all is Uziyahu. Uziyahu should have been satisfied with being a king. Has to know he's not a Kohen, and it's beyond his position to go in. We were backwards. What was it Gehazi was guilty of? Well, Gehazi thought he knew better than his master, Elisha, about the appropriate way to deal with Naaman. Elisha had said not to. This is not the time to ask for things or to accept gifts from Naaman. Naaman himself thought he knew better than Elisha, and that's why when Elisha did not come out to greet him, but sent a messenger out and said, go into the Erdan and dip seven times, uh, Naaman was very angry and thought it was beneath him and thought that this was disrespectful to the great Naaman that the prophet wouldn't come out to see him until one of his advisors told him that he should go into the Ardain and, and that, of course, changed everything for Naaman. We roll backwards now to Miriam. What was Miriam's issue? Miriam thought that she was on the same status at the same level of intensity of prophecy that Moshe had. Hello, Ach, Moshe, Gambanu Diber. Moshe, Hashem also spoke to us. However we interpret that, whether we interpret it about continuing marital relations like the direction of Midrash that Rashi picks up, or on saying that Moshe's separation from the community, whatever it may be, Miriam's position was uh, that she is a Nevi'ah just like Moshe is a Navi, and he shouldn't behave differently than, than the rest of the Nevi'im. And you could see that from Hashem's answer, which is to say that Moshe's Nevi'ah indeed is different. All right, And then, of course, we roll back to Moshe Rabbeinu, who is essentially contesting God and saying that, no, they won't listen to me, and, and, uh, and, and B'nai Israel won't listen to me, and I won't be successful. And, and at some point, HaKadosh Baruch is giving him rebuke and saying, well, who knows this better, you or I? And although Hashem does accommodate to Moshe Rabbeinu, although, albeit with anger, take a look at the end of that scene uh, in, uh, in Peretal, Pesuk Tetzayin, but nonetheless, uh, the Tzarat seems to be an instructive piece, which is why the Tzarat is one of the, one of the signs, the only sign that Hashem gave him that Moshe was not told to replicate, because that's not something that was part of his presentation to the others, but rather a lesson for himself. Okay, we'll pause at this point. We're going to pick it up with the very short Parakhav Zion in the next podcast and hear about the story of Yotam. In the meantime, everybody should have a wonderful day.